everything depends on who is operating that, that weapon system. Well, for several months during the darkest days of the war in the Pacific during World War II, the sailors aboard her used to say with 100% accuracy that right at that particular moment, the Pacific War consisted of the USS Enterprise versus the Empire of Japan. We had one active aircraft carrier for a significant period of time there for a while. Gentlemen, just as a quick question, do any of you want to take a rough guess how many aircraft carriers we had at the end of that war? Well, uh, 18 Essex, three Midways, and a bunch of escort and light carriers. We had 23 fleet carriers. Those would be the large, fast carriers, much like the Nimitz carriers. carriers oh, yeah, we, we had still today. the Enterprise. 23 yeah. fleet carriers. We had eight light carriers. We had 85 escort carriers. 143 aircraft carriers were built by the United States during World War II. That, my friends, is the definition of a superpower. Now, while the Russians have lost a capital ship, it, we talk about in our other right angle this week, it is possible, in fact, looking more likely on a daily basis, that the United States, rather than losing a, a major capital ship, may have picked up an additional seven or eight or nine effective aircraft carriers, not because the aircraft carrier changed in question, but because of the aircraft that's being carried on it. Hi, everybody. I'm Bill Whittle with Steve Green and Scott Ott, and this is a late introduction, but you get the idea. Uh, guys, here's how it works. We have now, of course, we have a far smaller number of aircraft carriers that are far more potent. We have an entire fleet of Nimitz-class big aircraft carriers, and now we have the USS uh, Ford, which is a sort of a next generation. So that's where America's real offensive striking power is. We also have a series of uh, amphibious landing craft that are flat deck carriers, and they're about the same size as the big carriers in World War II. Now, up until very recently, we assumed that those ships would be doing what they were designed to do, which is get Marines ashore. They had enough deck space for helicopters, they had enough deck space for some Ospreys, and enough to carry some Harriers, which are pretty light airplanes. They're okay for ground support on the shore, but they're not serious contenders today. However, I've been very critical of the F-35 program for the way it was paid and, and, and what it cost but the aircraft has performed far better than I originally thought it would. And the F-35 is pretty much arguably the best fighter jet in the world today. It's certainly uh, second only to the F-22 Raptor. And what the Navy is discovering, gentlemen, is that if you put these advanced uh, sixth generation fighter jets, fifth generation fighter jets on the small assault carriers, you now have a deck with serious offensive punch. So we find ourselves in a situation very similar to the one in World War II, where we have our big fleet carriers, which are our offensive weapons, but we had 85 or something of these escort carriers. And the beauty of those were, even though they were small and light and didn't carry an awful lot of airplanes, they carried about a third of what a fleet carrier. We had so many of them that we could put them anywhere we damn well wanted. We could use them to support uh, ground assaults, we could use them to shuttle aircraft and so on. Uh, Scott, um, it's always been in a war between the United States, between the West and, and the, the Soviets and the Russians, and, and to some extent to the Chinese as well. It's always been a question of quantity versus quality. They've always had the quantity. We've usually had the quality, but it was Lenin himself who said that quantity has a quality all its own, yeah. and having an additional eight carrier decks able to launch significantly fewer numbers of 
but nevertheless of extremely potent aircraft. This is called the Lightning Carrier after the F-35, and it is the impression I get is it's kind of a dawning realization on the part of naval planners. That were, oh my God, we've got an extra seven, eight, nine decks here that we can use. See, this is the kind of thinking that I just love. And I think it, while it may not be unique to these United States of America, it is certainly, uh, we are the exemplar in the world of this kind of thinking. And if we've had criticisms as we have about the Pentagon in the past, you could sum them up this way. Hey, Pentagon, don't be Soviet. I mean, it was basically, we didn't want them to behave like this sort of huge monolith that makes bad decisions and then pumps it out in volume at great cost and gets some substandard product as a result of it. We like the idea of these scrappy people who come up with new ways to deploy, uh, you know, to project American strength on platforms that we thought may have been obsolete. It's funny, it, this reminds me of a what may seem like a relatively minor thing, but my grandfather who uh, raised me was a tank commander in World War II. And one of the things that he talked about was when they came up against these tremendous uh, French hedgerows that surrounded mm -hmm. uh, fields, it was a really difficult obstacle to get through. And that USGIs, essentially farm boys uh, from places like Iowa, and in my grandfather's case, a dairy farmer from Pennsylvania, uh, essentially got out there acetylene torches and made uh, cutting blades to put on the fronts of vehicles like tanks so that they could literally trim the hedges <laughs> so that they could cut Worked through. like a charm. Yes, it did. And, you know, that was kind of taking an existing platform that was not built to handle that kind of battle and turning it into an advantage by saying, you know what, let's tweak this a little bit and make it work. And that kind of innovation is, I, th I think, is what has typified the growth of this country. It's really, in a sense, what makes America great. And for those who think that, you know, I'm so sort of raving about American exceptionalism because of all the, you know, the great white people who came here from European countries. No, I mean, the, a great reason why the United States is so vigorously innovative is because we draw on the best minds in the world. People come from everywhere to this country because they want to try something new. And our government is also populated by these people. Our military is populated by people from all over the world. And so this is just uh, a cool way of, of reanalyzing everything and say, okay, what are the assets we bring to the table? Now, what are some interesting ways we could combine these assets? Hey, how can we milk another decade out of this uh, bomber? We talked a while back about the, how they were... Uh, putting new engines on this bomber that had been around for, what, 50 years or something like that? Yeah, the B-52 may end up being in service for very nearly 100 years when yeah. it's all said and done. Freaking phenomenal. And so I phenomenal. just think that, that this is a great way of looking at that. And frankly, adapting, you know, military doctrine has to change to adapt to the, the capabilities of the enemy and to your own capabilities. And to be able to sort of make a doctrinal change without scrapping billions of dollars worth of equipment, but actually saving it and transforming it and making it a, a more, uh, you know, forward-leaning posture for our military, I think is brilliant. 
Yeah, I do too. Uh, Steve, you probably know this, a, a carrier designation in World War II was CV. The, the nuclear carriers are CVN. The C stands for carrier. The V stands for heavier than air. The V is literally an arrow pointing down. Yep. And uh, the escort carriers during World War II that were made largely by Kaiser, you could put one out every two weeks or so, were called CVEs for carrier escort. And the guys on board the ships called them CVEs because that stood for combustible, vulnerable, and expendable. <laughs> yes. um, they were rushed out the door. But the but the decks that we're talking about here are nothing like that. These are not emergency uh, kind of, you know, bridges that we have to build. The, uh, the first of the Nimitz carriers, the USS Nimitz, was commissioned in 1975. The last of these uh, America-class uh, assault ships was com commissioned in 2020. They're, these ships are 20 years younger, on average, yeah. I would say, than our fleet carriers. No one's suggesting that we replace the fleet carriers, but our Navy is short of ships, and we don't have the kind of ships that we need to do the job that we do. All of a sudden now, by putting this extraordinarily capable aircraft on what was essentially a landing craft, we have greatly in improved our reach at a time when China, for example, is still struggling to build their first flat deck catapult launched uh, carrier. I, I have so much to say here, and I'm going to keep it just as, as brief as I possibly can, but there are a lot of exciting things going on. One is a tangentially related story. I don't know if you read this, but the Marines are getting rid of all their tanks. They are going for a, uh, a, a new mission where instead of storming the beach, which is what they'd be doing off of these uh, amphibious assault ships like the America, off of Ospreys and landing ships and helicopters, uh, they're getting into the business of sneaking around these small, smaller islands in the Pacific, setting up anti-ship missiles and just harassing the hell out of the Chinese. This is this is the new uh war plan for the Pacific, if we have to fight World War III or whatever we're going to call it against China. And it's an entirely new mission for the Marines. And it doesn't mean storming well-defended beaches, you know, held by, by by fanatical imperial Japanese forces and all Rub that stuff. Rubber boats at midnight kind of thing. It's, exactly. It's, it's, it's very nimble, very lightweight, set up these anti-aircraft missiles, fire off, sink some Chinese ships, move on to the next place. And providing them the kind of air power that only the F-35 can provide uh, without having to take up a carrier that should be fighting fleet actions, not, not this kind of thing, is phenomenal. It's not only an interesting story, but Bill, we're not the only people telling it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar, uh, Japan, I think uh, back in 2014, 2015, introduced a new class of warship, uh, the uh, Izumo class, if I remember correctly. Uh, that's what I have on my little note here. I, I hope I got that right. And the first time I saw an Izumo, I had to write about it because Japan called it a helicopter destroyer, which makes you think of a typical American destroyer that's got a helicopter pad in back. Except you look at this thing and the first words out of my mouth were, Japanese went and built a baby aircraft carrier. <laughs> yep. It's a whole lot of deck and not any guns. And as it turns out, the uh, the thinking behind this Izumo class, Izumo class is that uh, it would have a lot of storage area for things like relief supplies, because officially the Japanese Navy is the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force. You're not supposed to have a Navy. Mm -hmm. But not only is that deck big and flat and kind of perfect for an F-35, 
but Japan is buying F-35s. And not only is that storage space inside the hull perfect for, say, relief supplies, but you can also put things in there like munitions and aviation fuel tanks. <laughs> and as it turns out, as soon as Japan started uh, uh, buying F-35s, they also started uh, converting the deck of one of these one of these ships to withstand the heat generated by F-35s. Japan has two of these. They've converted one. They're working on the other. The South Koreans are building a couple of ships just like it. And the reason they're doing this is everybody's nervous about China's shipbuilding. So it's not just us getting on board with this. It's our two most powerful allies in the North Pacific who are going right on. We gotcha. I was uh, sorry I was distracted there. I was trying to find some information. I, I couldn't get to it. One of the carriers that they launched these F-35s off of in the last couple months, I want to say it was Akagi, but I know for a certain fact that whatever it was, whatever the name of that carrier was, it was the name of one of the Japanese carriers that were- Yeah, it's the Akagi. Kido. I think you're right. Was it the Akagi? I'm, I'm so, pretty sure. So, so it's, here's a Japanese aircraft carrier named Akagi back in the game and on our side this time. I watched- I watched aircraft care. I watched aircraft come off of a Japanese carrier named Akagi, and for the first time ever, I was like applauding. You know, hooray! You didn't hooray. want it to sink. I didn't want it to sink exactly. <laughs> this kind of thing, as Scott pointed out, is is unexpected, and it takes an, and it takes a certain amount of flexibility and fluidity to to get past the institutional rigidity and get to the point where you can reimagine things. What used to be a, a, a vessel for getting Marines ashore now could potentially be the equivalent of an escort carrier. It puts serious force projection out there. At a time when the U.S. Navy is, is extremely underfunded and undershipped, it is a, a tremendous possibility for advance. Now, I've mentioned that these were converted landing ships and that uh, in the other uh right angle that we did on the loss of the Moskova and the Black Sea, we have lost one of these carrier decks. We have lost a carrier that was about the size of an Essex-class carrier in World War II, serious ship. Was it destroyed by a Chinese hypersonic missile? No. Was it, was it destroyed by a, a Russian submarine? No. The USS Bonhomme Richard burned at the dock and is a complete write-off. It's gone. It's, it's out of action because one woke sailor set a fire on board that ship, and for whatever reason, the crew was not able to put out either a single fire or a series of small fires. The USS um, Ben Franklin took kamikaze hits in World War II and limped back with a hole in the deck that's practically the size of the Bonhomme Richard. It was saved by the extraordinarily capable damage control teams that the U.S. Navy had developed at great expense at the end of, of that war. And the idea that we could lose a carrier to a surly uh, woke person who had a problem with the Navy and took out one of our flight decks is the thing that you should be worried about. It's certainly the thing that I'm worried about. What we're learning from the, the situation in Ukraine and with China and so on is that these weapon systems that we're going up against are not the match of ours. We really genuinely do have stuff that works and most of their stuff doesn't. But, but, but everything depends on who is operating that, that weapon system. Wars are not won and lost by, by ships. and They're not won and lost by aircraft, no matter how sophisticated they are. They are won and lost by men, and now men and women, who actually make those 
pieces of steel and aluminum into weapons. And if we continue to have a uh, military, this primary um, concern is gender equality and climate change, then it doesn't matter how miraculous our weapon systems are. They might as well be at the bottom of the ocean if we don't know how to fight them. And that's something we should be looking at very seriously as a country. For Steve Green and Scott Ott, I'm Bill Whittle. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on Radio.